Welcome to Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlight, the product design studio. Wait, what are we now? We're a digital product studio. Okay, we're locking (laughs) it down. We're locking it down. We are a digital digital product studio. Boom. Uh, at 101 Fifth Avenue, you have any problems, you just get in touch. I mean, any kind at all, even if like your leg hurts. Yeah. We'll, we'll figure out a digital just, solution. We take meetings. So my name is Paul Ford. I'm a co-founder of Postlight. Uh, Rich Ciotti, also a co-founder of Postlight. And Rich, have you ever heard of a phrase? Let me, let me see. This is an unusual phrase. You may never have heard of it before. Big data. I have heard of this phrase. Okay, before. that's popped up in your in your career so far? It's popped up in a few articles, headlines... Futurism essays. I think we have in the studio today America's leading critic of big data. Critic? Interesting. Critic. America's. The world's. (laughs) I I didn't know big data had critics. I thought it was critic immune because it's it's, big data. Well, you know who's going to tell us something about that is probably not you or me because we don't know a damn thing about (laughs) it. But Kathy O'Neill, who is... God, Kathy, where do we even start? Hi, mm. welcome to Track Changes. So welcome. glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You've written several books. This is just the most recent. Well, I wrote I wrote another book. Let's not exaggerate. <laughs> <laughs> and a, a, just a, a just a, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Sure. They, you I know. was just going to say a buttload of po- of like a blog buttload. posts. That's oh. a green light on both. Oh. <laughs> Don't worry about buttload. Oh, that's just where I was starting. <laughs> I always have this fancy if I have a New Yorker cartoon where they. They're doing surgery on someone and they're holding up a mass from the person's body and they go, wow, he had a book in him all along. <laughs> That's, my, That's strong. It's good, right? You, you, need, you probably know somebody twice removed from New Yorker. It's, it's also possible. That needs to somebody, get in there. I, I think somebody may have done it too. Like I can't tell. In like the is 40s. it a memory yeah. or an idea? Yeah. yeah, but it's a good, it's really good. It's I'm going to take credit until it's strong. someone on the internet points it out. Right. Um, so the most recent book that you've written of your many, many <laughs> two books is Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. And that is brought out by Random House, right? by the Crown imprint in yes, Random House. exactly. Good people at Random House, good people at Crown. Amazing. Just making it work and creating a critical framework for Big data. What is big yeah. data? And they allowed me to have a really long subtitle, which is always a good sign. The it's title. Like, can we talk about the title for just one yeah, second? Yeah, yeah. What a killer title. Weapons Thank of you. Math Destruction. I mean, well, also, I got to yeah. say, like, you, you know, I'm like, okay, Weapons of Math Destruction, but then you go all the way. It's WMD is all through the book. Yep, I'm not kidding. No, you were in there for that. You, you, I appreciate that in a title. It wasn't just like, hey, this is cool. It's catchy. <laughs> no, we're, we're going in. We're going we're gonna to set up a pattern and a framework. I'm delivering. You know, and it's because I'm a math nerd, because like I wanted to like perform triage on algorithms, which are the things that I care about. Like everyone always has these vague sort of unfocused discussions about the, the harms of data collection. And I'm like, which harms? Exactly. How is it going to happen? So Can we talk say, about that? You say math nerd, but math nerd is like, I like puzzles. You're you're like a math educator who you got a some degree in some sort of math. Yeah. That's where my brain just stops. Well, let's, let's spend a minute and talk about how you got here. Yeah. Okay. All right. School. I'm a, yeah. School. I went Wh- to UC Berkeley. When um, did you first yeah. know that oh. math was your love? Well, I yeah, let's, know. Oh, let's go um, all the way back. When I was five. Really? Yeah. Wow. When I was five... My mom said... Where are you, geographically? Oh, I'm in um, Watertown, Massachusetts at the time. 
Okay. And my mom set up spirographs because, mm. like, my mom was a computer science professor and like was too busy to hang out with me. So she was like, "Let's use these really sharp pins." You know, spirographs really have are pretty dangerous, right? <laughs> and she set it up for me. And I started playing with spirographs. Do you guys remember what that is? I do oh, yeah. remember. You know, they're like is. like little gears inside larger gears. And yeah. I remember. And they draw these sort of beautiful patterns. Beautiful. It's really cool. and, and when you're and, five, it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. But also like, and I love colors. So I was using different color pens, but they're periodic. Mm-hmm. And I remember understanding prime numbers. I remember thinking like, here's something that's period six. At five. Yeah, I just remember getting it. I was like, "Oh, period three that happens twice in a period six. And I was like, the, "Like these are the basic constituents of a number. Are like the way that you could have sub periods of a period." Rich, what were you doing when you were five? L- let me really actually think. I just got to the country. I was trying to learn the English language. Okay, that's a biggie. Yeah, so that kind of threw me off. I was I'm re- not the typical. What are you doing when you were five? Yeah, I was refusing to learn how to read. I was told that I could learn how to read, and I, was okay. like, I, don't, I have no interest in that. I'll do it when I'm six. That's when you. Do. You don't tell me when I'm <laughs> yeah, going to read. Yeah. I'll tell you when I'm ready to yeah. read. Fair enough. That was that's yeah. That's no, about I get where that. I I've been, right. I'm a stubborn person myself. Three really unique, interesting people right here in the room, <laughs> <laughs> or at least one. Um, <laughs> and so then, like, like okay. skip, skip ahead ten years. Like I end up at math camp when I'm 15 mm-hmm. and it's because it's not like randomly I chose to go to math camp because I liked math but that's when I really fell hard because I learned how to solve the Rubik's Cube using like group theory and I was like this is it I'm this wow. is all I'm gonna do so I mean this is math math this is like yeah. oh hey group theory cool good way to solve a Rubik's Cube and any other kind of cube puzzle like mm. Rubik's type puzzles yeah. so those like you know. whereas I would smash it against the wall and slowly put it back together <laughs> well you can do that too <laughs> yeah, that, you can even just take the stickers works. off sometimes yeah. yeah that's more chaos theory yeah so then I, I was like I love math and math is pure and beautiful and like at the same time you know I was in a you know good school system but like the teachers I had weren't consistently very good and I re- just remember very strongly like this feeling around the same time where my social studies teacher was talking about manifest destiny as if it was like true like not not like a historical interesting thing we should talk about like you know should we really kill all the native americans it was just like and then we realized that we were we needed to get off that city on a hill and (laughs) head west and it was just like to me it was so um fraught you know like like, i was like obviously you believe this but you're wrong and i believe something else but i'm not going to talk you into it and it was like this this kind of realization that there's like the dir- yeah. dirty world of reality and like history and like law and all those things that are confusing and politics. And then there was math and math was like perfect because even if I dislike someone desperately, like we'd have to agree if something was true. Right. That, mm. that, that is very tricky in high school because right? you're not fully prepared to reject consensus reality. Like there are parts of it that still matter. You want friends, you want to like participate, you don't want to be rejected from the system, but at the same time you're getting these clues that all is not as it's supposed to be. And it's a tough time when you're 14, 15, 16, like you are like someone who's laser sharp at noticing hypocrisy right. and inconsistency and, and you just sort of, you want to correct everything in the world, you have no power. So you have like this this amazing obser- yeah. power of observation but no actual power to change yeah. anything. See, as you're saying that now I'm old and on the other side <laughs> of it, I'm like, teens are exhausting. They are exhausting. Oh my God. But I get them. Yeah, I, I fair, have two teenagers fair. myself and when they point out my hypocrisy, I'm, I'm like, yep, <laughs> you're yeah. right, you're yeah. right. Yeah, I think, Computers were like that for me in terms of like just 
shelter. Yeah, there's a refuge. Um, yeah, it was ritual for me. Yeah. It was, yeah, I could go somewhere. And I could make yeah. something happen. Like, yeah. I also programmed yeah. when I was that age. I would program, like, many, many adventure games on my mm-hmm. Apple IIe. So you go to math camp. So I go to okay. math camp, and then I'm like, this is it, people. How <laughs> math campy was math camp? It was unbelievably math camping. Yeah, it, would, it, it happened at, at Hampshire College, which is like a, like a hippie. It's still oh, yeah. hippie. You, yeah, know? you can get a degree in like world systems there and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that it's in, you're in the forest. You're in the forest. And I love that. And the cornfields. I love the yeah. math camp aspect. Yeah, of there's it. no grid. In, in Hampshire, but did yeah. you did you swing off tree off branches and play in the woods and stuff like that as well, or are you just hold up doing math? Oh no no! So we we would do math in the mornings and then we'd have the afternoons free to like I played bridge all the time, and then bridge we, with cards with cards yeah and okay. then and then we didn't like so you're problem, not swimming and playing volleyball problem sets in the evening oh now, god do I look athletic to you as a former <laughs> as a former nerd who might still be a little nerdy maybe um, maybe. I'm imagining what the boys were like in math camp and you're like overall like you must have been the coolest person at math camp. I was really, really, really cool at math camp. By the way, I have a blog, which I started like four or five years ago called Math Babe. Mm-hmm. And I there's like an origin story for that name, Math Babe, which was basically I went to math camp and I was the math babe. Like mm-hmm. I was a babe. It's funny. It was like and so inconsistent with my previous life. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's just. So we don't, we don't need to right. like drill too deep we're in that. College we got to yeah, we're, we go to college. <laughs> we're deep. We want to get to this book. Okay. So, went to college, majored in math, loved it. Went to Harvard, got a PhD in number theory. Then I went to MIT as a postdoc and ended up at Barnard College being a math professor. And loving teaching and loving number theory. What year are we now? Uh 2006. Okay. But by the time I, you know, I was like 20 years later, like 35 or something, I was like, you know, I don't know if this is actually what suits me. I'm a kind yeah, of too. person who wants feedback. I want to know that I'm ha- like having an effect on the world. And, you know, number theory and math, like academics is slow, but number theory is the slowest of all everything. And then this is the thing, like, I'm hearing you tell this and you're about to leave, but like when you're in that world, you went and got that PhD, you're not really supposed to leave that world. No. Especially if you have you got a what cl- I got, which was amazing, a beautiful situation. Yeah, you're and, teaching at Barnard. I mean, yeah. it's, okay, so this is and like... I could take students at Columbia. I was a part of the Columbia Math Department, so I was teaching. You know, it was wonderful students. Total cultural pole position. Like, as yeah. a mathematician who loves pure math, it's hard to do better than that. It is. And I wasn't trying to do better than that in that sense, right? right. What I was realizing was that I just, it wasn't my tempo, mm-hmm. right? So I was like, I want to be a businesswoman. Like so. Anyway, so did you wait? Did you like teaching? Did you like undergrad? Loved, loved teaching. Okay, and I loved advising. To be honest, and I would have been like happy to do my share. Okay, yeah, um, but I just didn't want to be a martyr, mm-hmm. um, you know. And again, I did actually want a different pace. So I was like, oh, I'll just go work at, you know, DE Shaw, which is a hedge fund, which a lot of my friends have already gone to work at, and like it's two thousand six, and everything looks great. Shaw. Sure. I mean, it's like value this hedge fund for me um, dollars. Like. You what mean their managing? investments, like something something along the lines of twenty five billion? Right, They're huge. It's big, yeah. yeah. And it was a big player then. It's probably just as big now. Yeah, yeah. So we, I went there, and you know, then the world fell apart. Oh six, oh seven. I, mean, I got there, and I got you know, you're an academic. You get a job yeah. in two thousand six. You take it in two thousand seven. I joined in June of two thousand seven. Right. Then really? like, wow. Within, oh wow! Within two months, it was the yeah. you know situation. You mm-hmm. literally walked into a burning building and yeah. like sat at your desk. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I walked into a burning building where everybody was like really 
really smug, happy yeah. to see me and like really smug and like we're like they we're so good at this, you know, and then <sighs> and then everything fell apart and they were like it's true. We you have found the no one, idea what we're doing. You found the one the one cohort that's more exhausting than academics <laughs> is head fund quant and That traders. must have been yeah. cool to watch though. It was. It was interesting. Because you weren't in the game that much. So like now you're just you're like flying the plane through the hurricane. I'm not flying the plane. I'm I'm on the plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But I didn't. F- yeah, it was. You're it was still like kind of an outsider. I'm an outsider. I'm an anthropologist. Like, okay. yeah, observing the natives essentially. What did it feel like on the ground? I think it was mostly just bewildering. Okay. You know, like at some point, relatively soon after I joined, you know, after the the 2007 kerfuffle, which was not really noticed by most of the people, but noticed within the street. We had a discussion about mortgage-backed securities and how like these AAA ratings of mortgage-backed securities in particular were given to certain kinds of package mortgages, like pools of mortgages, once they were tranched. And, and then the lower tranches, like the really risky stuff, was then reconstituted, a new kind of sausage was made with them. Mm. And the highest tranches of that shitty stuff was again given a triple a rating mm-hmm. and i just remember that moment when the guy who was exp- like the managing director who was explaining this to us said that and i was like well why would that get a triple a rating if we know it's bad you're literally i'm literally seeing the hmm emoji in my head yes, as you're saying you this should like, hmm. you should and he he sort of was like yeah that's just how it works and i was like that sounds stupid <laughs> that sounds terrible well you know the analogy i always <laughs> love to use is the breakfast buffet when there's like still like a little bit of oatmeal at the bottom of the pan and you make new oatmeal for the next day. Yeah. You just keep that oatmeal. It's all good. You just mix I, well, it right that's, in. That's a little bit different. I think the I know. better analog <laughs> no. would be like you have like 15 restaurants that all make oatmeal and they all have like a one inch thick like old oatmeal at the bottom and they scrape that old oatmeal together and then reserve it. Yeah. Like they take all the 15 different pots. It's just, so the, there's the, goal, oatmeal, the thinking is it's masked. Is that an oatmeal tranche at that point? It'd be is one that thing if you're is? mixing in with good oatmeal, but you're just mixing all this shitty oatmeal together and saying yeah. it's good. Yeah. yeah. That's oh, not yeah, good. It's even worse. Yeah. It's worse. So, it you're, even... so you're like, this is triple A oatmeal. Yeah. And, and you're in there going like, God, that oatmeal just tastes like shit. That oatmeal like, is... It's hard. It's yeah. hard oatmeal. So your reaction to them saying, well, this is what we do. It's not actually what we did, to be clear. Like, But it's what we as a, as a as an financial industry, industry were doing. Was doing yeah. um, and we were like trying to hold it at arm's length. We were like, oh, we're not investing in this stuff. It's rotten stuff. And, you know, it was rotten. Um, but what was bewildering was that even in spite of the fact that we had insulated ourselves, or so we thought, from that market, we hadn't at all. Right. At all. And so... Really, what was happening was that we were realizing that all the other institutions that had a toe in the mortgage market and in all the other stuff that we did, they were unwinding their positions in the stuff we did. So our positions were looking worse and worse. Mm. There was no way for us to actually be independent. you were two or three degrees of separation, but still connected. We were very well embedded in that whole thing. And everyone else was too. Everybody was. Right. So... We lost a lot of money in spite of the fact that we thought we were clean. Mm. And none of the previous historical data would have told us you're going to get screwed because, yeah. you know, that's what we followed. We believed in that like a religion. Right. So basically two things from my experience there. Number one is that, you know, we're really very arrogant about understanding what the data is saying and what we mm. think we can conclude from that. But also that we were sort of all sort of stymied and blindsided by this sort of mathematical lie, this AAA rating thing. 
Um, and when I say we, I mostly mean like investors <laughs> mm-hmm. that were outside of Wall Street and like, you know, Norwegian fund or whatever, like all the people that. Sorry. Everybody. Everybody. So, but now you're in the world of actual big data, big yeah. piles of investment data that is being bundled up and people are going, yeah, the model says that we can classify this as AAA and get away with it. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is like a, this is a moment, right? When you're, you're going like, all right, this is actually nonsense. So go back to my moment when I was like, I'm, I'm in math. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm Rubik's Cube. You know, it's beautiful because it's true. Mm-hmm. I was like, this isn't true. Right. Yeah, this so it was is, just fundamentally... Right. The alarms went off. This is you. a lie. This yeah. is, in fact, a weaponized mathematical construction. Is it fair to say that when people talk about you, the words go with the flow don't come up a lot? No, like no, a, I'm like yeah. a professional quitter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I, this, this is like... Mm, 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 uh, yeah, mm, no, yeah. So I was like, this is not... So I quit, um, and I went to... You did quit. I did, yeah, I quit. Okay. Uh, also, people are like, why are you quitting that job? Like, you know, same yeah. thing. Um, and I was like, because I like quitting. <laughs> um, and then I went to work in risk to try to like double down on math. Right. You know, I still believed in math as a solution. And like spending two years there, then realizing like, no, this wasn't, math wasn't the problem actually. It wasn't that we had the wrong models. It's that we really don't care about the truth. It's that it's become a political thing. So when when you're talking about risk, I spent a year sort of fixing the credit default swap risk model for like hedge funds and banks, you know, uh, in the value at, value at risk. Help, model. help me understand the part. Like when you say fixing the model, yeah. what is is the model a Microsoft Word document? What is the model? <sighs> you mean like technically speaking? Yeah, like everyone talks about these models, and I'm like, what is it? Just like a page of instructions? Is it a big spreadsheet? What is the model? Okay, so. I'll talk about theoretically and then I'll tell you about what it actually, what happens physically. So theoretically what the model is, is something you put in data and you actually train it on lots and lots of historical data. But the data you put in on a given day is like your portfolio. Okay. If you're a bank. And then the output is how much, it's called the 95 VAR. How much is like out of, if you have a hundred days, what is the 95th worst day of returns for that portfolio? Mm-hmm. Like what, what can you kind of expect for a bad day? So that's kind of the idea of like the so, risk that you're holding. So there's the set of functions you're pouring information in and you're aiming to get this one number. It's one number. One number so that you can assess that risk. set of investments against other sets of investments. Yeah. So the, how much would this portfolio lose on a bad day? Okay. And so by doing that with lots of different portfolios, I'm able to understand my risk by yes, comparing that's them. The okay. That's okay. the idea. That's the idea. Using tons of historical data. Okay. And the, that portfolio could be as simple like I own Apple stock and nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. So it starts there. It starts with individual. It could be a portfolio instruments. of anything. Yes, really. but you combine those t- for different. You sort of model each instrument individually, and then how they combine to each other. Anyway, the point is that there's lots of assumptions that go into, in particular, how stocks and instruments and bonds and, and credit default swaps how they might um, lose or gain value in synchrony, right? These assumptions are were for the credit default swap case like just false. They were very simplistic, and in particular, they assumed that the returns on a, for a given credit default swap was sort of Gaussian, like normal bell curve kind of shaped okay. as a distribution, which is to say, like you know, sometimes things will go bad, but not that often. Okay. What I did was very simple. I just looked at the actual returns for credit instruments like credit default swaps, and it was nothing like a normal distribution. At all. So you looked at the historical Historical returns. returns. Wait, yeah. So people weren't doing that? They were just like, no, it should look like this? 
Yeah. And, and not only that, but I think they still do it that way. Ugh. And they do it that way because it simplifies the calculation. Well, that's a bad reason. Yeah, it's a bad reason. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't build the foundations of the entire global economy on, on convenience. Yeah, it, well, here's, here's what's worse. is like At first I thought they're doing this because they don't know how to do better. So like I worked it out and I figured out how to do it better. And then like I was like, actually, they're doing it this way because their risk is underestimated this way and they like it that way. Well, I mean, that's optimism. <laughs> Let's have a good attitude about things here, guys. <sighs> but, you know, anyway, but my point being like two years later, I'm like, no, it's not a math problem. Okay, so you, you literally, it's like heart of darkness and you're going up the river to, right. towards financial. And I felt like at that point, I felt like I'm part of this and I'm, I'm one of those PhDs they keep pointing to in the corner saying, We're, we got this, you know, and I just didn't want to be that. I and where were you at, at the tail end of this? Where I was at, I was at Risk Metrics, which was just like in the Chase Building near Wall okay. Street. What is Risk Metrics? It was the company that built this risk model. So it builds the risk. And there's, is okay. the risk model sort of delivered to software? I want to go yeah, back to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the, the portfolios are uploaded to Risk Metrics Grid, and then we do these you ridiculous do the, calculations the overnight yeah. in batch jobs. And I see. Then, so it's like, a, it's like a cloud service. Yes, Absolutely. Okay, I like to know how the world works or does it. It is just terrifying when you like because you're you're describing this and it's just all very normal. Everybody's going to their job. There's a lot of bankers going like, "Well, that curve looks fine to me," and then just one day, kaboom. right? And I I don't mean to say that there's no use, no utility whatsoever in these calculations. There's there's plenty of stuff that they do care about. It's just that there's plenty of ways for them to not care. And again, like I ended up feeling like, oh my god, this happened again. Like I'm, I'm basically wait, fronting. what happened again? I'm fronting for a mathematical lie. Oh, you felt that I felt the implicated. Same, we're back to square one. Yeah, again we're like, here. what, what? You know, like and I want to. This wanna... is two, 2011. Yeah, and I just wanted. Now, to... Now, in all fairness, you yeah. had a couple years to contextualize that maybe something was a little bit off with Wall Street. Oh yeah, but I left the hedge fund saying I want to help fix this. Okay, so and you're then, like, like, I can't. I'm going to fix the system from inside. Yeah. You did that actual thing. You're I did like, that thing. So you leave. I left, and I wanted to sort of improve the world. I wanted to feel like morally positive or at least neutral. So that's when I started MathBabe. I was like, I'm going to expose this corruption to the world, at least to mathematicians. With, a, I, with a blog. With a blog, of course. Of course. It was, it was 2011, man. That's what we did. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, I also needed to be employed, sure. you know, because I have three kids and stuff. So I got a job at a startup. I became a data scientist. It was really easy. I just changed my title to data scientist. <laughs> and I got a job um, in a like, company doing stuff with online advertising. Okay. So what is a data scientist? It's somebody who uses historical data to build algorithms that predict people. Instead of predict markets, I was predicting people. But it was really not that different. Well, that is a great definition, though, actually. I mean, honestly, 99% of data scientists asked to define what they do would be like, I... Do you have 20 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not the only thing we do. And like, I built like a overnight report system, you know, the daily dashboard for the company. I did a lot of data visualization using Tableau. Like I figured out how to make the data real for the company. Do I come to you then with a big pile of data and go, hey, Kathy, I got this data. Mm -hmm. That's, you're a scientist. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much it? Oh yeah. Okay. And then you, but you have to tell me what the question is that you're trying to answer. What's a good question? Um, how do I get more people to buy? Okay. And then I say, well, okay, so what are the, what's the, what are the moments we're collecting data about those people? Now, isn't that evil? Well, that's the good question. Thank you, Richard. 
<laughs> thanks for thanks for that question. Yeah, I mean, so I, originally I was like, this isn't evil. I mean, I'm, some people buy hotels on Expedia, some people don't. You I kind of like, see where this is going now. And I don't, I still don't think it was evil, but I'll tell you what happened. Wait, why is it in the past tense? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's just there's a certain trend here with you at these jobs. Oh my we're, God, we're, you're right. God, you're making me like <laughs> reflect upon myself. It's not pretty. Um, so what happened was like, there was this venture capitalist who came, who was thinking of investing in our Series B funding round. Okay. And he wanted to talk to all of us. So we came and listened to him. And he said something along the lines of like, I'm, here's what I imagine tailored advertising will look like in the future. It's going to be a beautiful place where I get what I want and people, other people get what they want and everyone's happy. And then he said, in particular, like I look forward to the day when all I see are trips to Aruba and jet skis. And I never going to have to see another university of Phoenix ad because that's, those aren't for people like me. And everyone around me laughed. And I remember thinking, what? Oh boy. Like what happened to the democratizing force of the internet? Yeah, that's not their priority with those guys. That's yeah. not really what they're not. They're he's literally going like, let's make it beautiful, and show me like Sonoma vacations. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it just struck me that like you're saying that everybody wants what they get, but who wants the University of Phoenix ads? Like, what does that mean to want that? And what is the University of Phoenix really doing? Right. And by the way, I had never seen a University of Phoenix ad. I was like, did this guy really see that? Because I never saw that. And then I looked it up and I realized that that Apollo Group, which is the parent company of University of Phoenix, had actually been the biggest advertiser on Google that sure, quarter. Sure. And I was like, this stuff is huge, but I never see it. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about is, you know, instead of like everyone, nobody knows you're a dog, it's like everybody is siloed and segmented and segregated actually on their internet experience and it's fine for for technologists and venture capitalists and like us very well educated people who are creating this world but at the far and other end of the spectrum we are actually building a a predatory system which nobody should be happy about and then i started researching into the sort of for-profit college industry which was at its height it was 2011 and it was terrible. Yeah, that's bad stuff in there. And then the payday lending, um, also extremely predatory. Well, that's that's even worse stuff. And you know, they've since then they've closed like Corinthian College and ITT Tech most recently. Right. But like Corinthian was like nailed for like specifically targeting single poor mothers of color and like telling them that they're if they wanted to do well by their child, right? They were going to agree to this because it's going to present their child with a better life. And it was, they were actually told to find the pain point for these people Mm -hmm. and like focus on the pain and then tell them this pain is going to be gone when you agree to this. Like recruiting was just awful. And the point is that with the internet, the way we use demographics to pinpoint people on the internet, like it is really easy to do this. It's really easy to find those people. So how did you quit this job? Well, I didn't quit in disgust of this job, to be clear. Okay. Um, what happened was I simultane- it was pretty much simultaneously with that realization. I also had a friend who was a principal whose teachers were being scored by a um, what's called the value-added teacher model. Mm-hmm. And I started looking into that scoring system because I, well, I asked her, well, how, what is the formula? How are they being scored? And she was like, well, I asked my DOE contact, but uh, my Department of Education contact, but... 
but she's just said it's math you wouldn't understand it. So she's being judged by secret math she can't see. Her teachers are. She's a principal. Okay. Yes. Her her teachers are all being judged by something she couldn't see. And I was like, what? You know, math is not supposed to be, what, you know, <laughs> yeah, obfuscate truth. Yeah. It's supposed to clarify truth. Like what the heck? So I was like, could you double down, ask that person again? I'm telling them that you do understand math because I'm going to read this for you, you know? And so she, she was told that three times before she finally got this white paper, which was unreadable. She sent it to me. I was like, I've been, I have a math PhD. I've been doing modeling for 10 years or you've something. You've seen some bad stuff. And I couldn't understand this at all. Yeah. You've been down in the, you've seen because terrible things. Because it's bad or because it's. It was written so that nobody could understand it. Just okay. Obscure, so there's. Like even the worst academic isn't yeah, as bad. Okay. Yeah. So you know, around that same time, the New York Post published all the teachers' names and their scores. Uh, it was grisly. Active shaming. Did they really? Yeah. Yeah, it was hideous. And the way they did that was they, they did a Freedom of Information Act request. And so I was like, well, if they can get the, num- the scores, I can get the formula, I thought. <laughs> so I f- filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get the source code. And I specifically said in my in my request, do not send me the white paper. That's not what I'm talking about. Trade I'm talking secret. about the So yeah, so they didn't give it to me. Um, yeah. They eventually gave me the white paper and said this is case is closed. And I was like, that's I didn't ask for the white paper. I specifically said no. Throw no. teachers under the bus. They're never giving right. you that. So yeah. I actually ended up talking to someone who worked at the place that built this model in Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin, because this model is being used not just in New York City. Right. It's like a. This is a major thing. It's a this. think t- think tanky type place. Okay. A, a value added research center. And what is their argument for not sharing the? So yeah. So I said, why didn't I get this? I uh, I feel like you're you guys are assessing civil servants. I should be able to see this. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, you're not the only one who can't see this. Like, nobody in the Department of Education can see this. Our contract with the Department of Education stipulates that this is a secret formula. The point being that, like, number one, nobody has access to this formula. But number two, like, nobody understands this formula. Like, that means that nobody in the Department of Education could actually confirm these scores. Or it, should just be, it could literally or... be like one line of code that just says random, you know, out yeah. of 100, pick a number. In fact, there was an example of that because this stuff is all over the country. There was an example where there was an actual computer error and they only figured it out because some teachers were getting scores for classes they didn't teach. <laughs> oh, so you're lear- So in order to understand how you're being scored, you have to reverse engineer the test scores back to the algorithm that is determining how a teacher is performing. Okay. So what happened was this intrepid civilian journalist um, who's actually a math teacher at Stuyvesant High School. His name is Gary Rubenstein. He did something really smart. He's like, well, you know, since the New York Post got these scores for teachers, I have access to that. You know, they're now publicly available. He got his copy of them and he found that many teachers had two scores Hmm. because they taught two classes. So they got a seventh grade math score and an eighth grade math score, or the fifth grade English score and a sixth grade English score. He found more than 600 teachers got two scores for the same year. And remember, these scores were just supposed to, I didn't tell you this, but the truth is these scores were supposed to just tell you whether you're a good teacher or not. So they weren't supposed to depend on fifth or sixth or whatever. Right. So if you're above X, if you're above yeah. you know, 75, you're a good teacher. If you're right. Below that was the idea. So they get two numbers, like between zero and 100, okay. right? And I'd already knew, I already knew a guy named Tim Clifford blogged about getting a six one year and a 96 the next year. So it was already, mm-hmm. hmm, like these doesn't sound consistent. Yeah. That is a discrepancy. Uh, yeah, a little yeah, bit. Okay. Because, especially because the six came with shame. 
Yeah. Just imagine. You're, you're like, the worst teacher in the world. Yeah, you There's, feel bad. Yeah. You you really only have like five ways to fail left. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, you know, he had he was a veteran. He was 26 years, English middle school teacher. But he, he was like the oh, young student teacher. In teachers. New York City? Yeah. Oh, can you imagine? But the young teachers in his school who got bad numbers were really shamed. Right, because he's just like, bored head. Yeah, he's just like, I've got another <laughs> system. Are you kidding me? Really get someone else to teach these little bastards. <laughs> you know, but, but then, yeah, you're there for like a year or two, and you're like, this is, I love my students. And yeah. then you're like, eh, you're a seven. You're a seven, yeah. Okay. So anyway, so Gary Rubenstein, going back to him, what he did was he plotted those teachers on a scatter plot. So x-axis is like the first score and y-axis is the second score. Okay. And if they were consistent, if you got like a 72 and then a 74, you'd expect all these dots to line yeah, up that's from a good diagonal. Least it's a consistent test at that point, yeah. right? Okay. It's, just, it's a test of consistency, right? Okay. What he saw was the scatter plot of this was almost uniform distribution. Oh, so it's just like, it's like static on the TV. Yeah. It's like you just as like, you seem to be, like with your eyes, you would look like just as likely to get 96 comma zero, which is 96 one scored zero for the other, as to get a 50 comma 50. Oh my. There was no consistency. Um, okay. So it just, I mean, that's kind of enough for me. Like there's a yeah. lots of economists, uh, Raj Chetty, who's like a famous Harvard economist, like writing these papers about how great the value added model is and how information that really matters is embedded in these scorings i'm like okay but they're completely you random well, on a given year for a given person so like, you might as well just put on a blindfold and throw a dart so it was actually 24 percent correlated so there's not nothing there's okay. not no information there but it's very very much like a random number generator for a given person what is a good correlation i don't know uh, i would like to see 95 percent correlation okay so we're way off yeah okay i mean at least 90 so in spite of this there are people that are getting fired sure, for bad scores. And I, oh, I interviewed wow. someone, Sarah Wasaki, who was fired in Washington, D.C. for a bad score. And so it's like high stakes combined with randomness. So this is a weapon of math destruction. Absolutely. What are we looking for when we're looking at these things? Like what is, you have a, a framework in the book for yeah. kind of identifying a WMD. Right, because I'm a math nerd. So yeah. I like to characterize things. I like to make them well-defined. So there's three characteristics for a, weapon of math destruction, an algorithm that's very worrisome to me. The first is that it's widespread. So I really care only about algorithms that matter to people. Like this has to make important decisions for a lot of people. Right. It's, not mass. Like, it's not like the mass part. Yeah, that's the mass. Exactly. Yeah. The scalability of it, the scaledness of it. So weapons, um, so the teacher value added model, as I said, is being used all over the country in more than half the states, mostly urban school districts in for high stakes decisions. Not always firing or hiring, but like often tenure. Um, so it's important. And with no transparency. Like they're not talking So that's to the you. second characteristic, secret. It's okay. got to be like mysterious. Like people do not understand their score. Half the time they don't even understand that they are being scored. Okay, so you can't sit there and like write a paper about this because you can't. Like, I mean, you could write a paper about what you've observed, but you can't take their work and go like, all right, I'm going to submit this paper about what they've done. So they're out of the whole academic context. The exactly. Whole, okay. So the other, the flip side of secrecy is lack of accountability. There's okay. like no accountability for these algorithms and okay. there's no way of auditing them. Exactly. As you said, there's no like check on them. It's actually fair in my opinion in that in that case to, to kind of assume the worst motives. Like I, because we don't know, you can be like, well, it's profit or power, but it, it's, we don't know why, 
they won't share the information right. or they're covering something up or whatever. I think that's it's it's actually like with stuff like this, which just determines people's lives, you really do just get to ask. You like, get to why, ask. Why the hell? Yeah, no, exactly. My my feeling is that if it's this important and this widespread, it's kind of like a law. So is it time to sue that organization? Like, what is it time to do? I'm what looking, can you do? I'm looking at Rich because he's a lawyer. So th- let me just finish my description because I've gotten oh, two yeah, out of three. Sorry. The yeah. third one is that it's destructive, that it's destroying people's lives unfairly, and moreover, that it's actually undermining its original goal. It's setting up a like a destructive feedback loop. So in the case of the value-added model for teachers, the original goal was to sort of get rid of bad teachers so that we could fix education, you know, all those things, and to sort of decrease the achievement gap, all, all sorts of things, but basically get rid of bad teachers. And what's actually happened is that good teachers have left. These, they just don't want to deal sure. with this yeah, anymore. Yeah, they sure. retire early. They get better jobs in schools that don't have this regime. So Sarah Wasaki, who got fired, she got hired the next week in an affluent suburb of Washington, D.C., which doesn't have these scoring systems. Right, because who wants to work for a robot? Right, right, let's, let's, let's dive in for a second and talk about the motivations behind the secrecy part of it. It's not in the best interest of whether this is for-profit or partly for-profit or non-profit or whatever to not be a successful tool. I mean, I don't think there's payoffs going on to hide the stuff, right? I think if you ask them, well, why don't you be more transparent about how this thing works, they're going to come back and say, well, the scrutiny and there's just sort of constant pings of complaint would be endless. Well, the easiest and therefore, argument, I mean, because we could easily just demonize and say there are bad guys in right, the room. Right, right, right. And they're going to say like, well, no, then people will game it. That's what they're going to say. But the same is true of voting machines. Like, it just never ends. This is, yeah. you can't fire someone and not tell them why. Agreed. But, I mean, they're talking about, like, well, there are seven, uh, let, me, let me be this person for a second. Let me represent, what's the name of this company? Vark. Vark. <laughs> <laughs> I am senior vice president of Varking and Vark. Ugh. All right. So I'm at Vark. I say, look, if we do this, we would be constantly scrutinized, constantly, there would be complaints filed against us on a, on a never-ending basis such that we couldn't even function as an organization. Because when someone gets a low score, they're going to want to audit and they're going to want to, you know, put the magnifying glass on us. We can't function. So therefore, there is an implicit trust, which I think is what they're banking on here, that this system is going to work because you trust us that it will work. I think the problem is that trust is not founded on anything. Well, they haven't earned it. It's an opaque they, they white haven't paper earned it. and a 24% correlation. So, I mean, uh, let me let me say what I think is well, true. And yeah. I, I think you're probably right, but I don't yeah. think that's the primary reason they're uh-huh. the secret. I think the primary reason is that they just think this is their secret sauce and they need to protect it because if they give it away, then other people could just literally copy it. Okay, so that sounds very commercial to me. Yep. So they must be a commercial for-profit well, they, they want the business. I'm not sure. Um, and yeah. by the way, VARC is like, they, they're not being used anymore. They, there's other companies now being used that also defend their Do secrecy. Do the same thing. Sure. They also, uh, I want to say Paul was right, that they, there's a lot of that, like, oh, we don't want people to game this. The thing about pe- people don't understand about gaming, you know, is like, if it's a good enough model that you should use it in high impact, widespread situations, then you want them to game it. Well, there's always like, that's just a big part of statistics, right? It's like that you, you are accommodating for that behavior in your model. And if you can't accommodate for it, you shouldn't use it. Let me give you an example, like credit scores. You know, credit scores are pretty good and I'm not, they're not perfect. I 
do have complaints about the way they're being used. But oh, they, we should, that would be another podcast. Yeah, I would. That would be amazing. No, mm-hmm. let's do that. But yeah. like, at the at the end of the day, what they're doing is looking at your behavior, paying your electricity bill, and your rent. So gaming that would look like I gotta pay my electricity bill on time this month. It's all you good. Know? It's all good. That's yeah. what we want. That's good gaming. And if we had a if we had a bad proxy in there, like somebody suggested once. Oh, instead of like looking at your electricity bill because it's expensive and time consuming to look at people's records, just like just count the number of books in their house and use that as a proxy for whether they're credit worthy. And the point is like once that gets out, then you would just buy a lot of books to make yourself look good. Right. Sure. That's the idea. That's that means that it's a bad proxy. Don't use that. Use electricity bills. That's the reason we use electricity right. bills. So I'm just saying that like in a situation that is this important. You can't rely on bad proxies. You have to you have to make sure that what you're doing is setting up a system where if people game it, they're better teachers. Yeah. That's not what we have. So actually the woman Sarah Wasaki who got fired, she has reason to believe, and I should mention that Michelle Ree, who was like Chancellor of Schools at the time, fired people who had bad scores, but also gave bonuses to people with good scores. And Sarah has reason to believe that the teachers of some of her students the previous year had cheated on the test. You talk about this in the book. Yeah. yeah. Mm. There's evidence for that. So like, and it totally makes sense. So it created an incentive system where if you cheated, you as a teacher could make more money. Yeah. And, but you would be screwing the, the next year's kids. Oh, because you're, she's going to inherit those kids, but her scores are going to be lower. Her scores are going to be lower because the way the scores kind of work, we don't really know, obviously, we don't have the formulas, but is like you compare the kids' actual scores versus what they were expected to get. And you're sort of on the hook for the difference. So if the scores of the kids coming in were inflated, then they're expected to get much better scores than they actually will get. Okay. So we've got an algorithm. We've got a way of identifying weapons of math destruction. Yeah. Whew, it's a rough one out there. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of weapons of math destruction. Every chapter of my book is like a different one. You talk about sports. You talk about finance. You talk about education. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. It's, it's good. It's well-written and, and breezy and bright because the actual news it imparts is that we are sort of sinners in the hand of an angry algorithmic God. Yeah. Actually, the sp- I should say the sp- my sports example is a counterexample, right? That's true because that, it works. Because sports is like the point is that it's, it's not a weapon of mass destruction. It's like, totally transparent. It's totally transparent. Like, I mean, I like to say that like, you know, because I listen, I watch baseball and I listen to a lot of baseball on the radio. Like the arguments we have about whether something should have been called an error is like the entire public helping people clean data. You know, as a data scientist, like you spend sure. 80 years, 80 percent of your time cleaning data. And it's like really not a very glamorous job to do. But, you know, in, in baseball, like the entire public helps. They like, oh, no, that should have, shouldn't have been called an error. Yeah. That's what, what's, hit. what's your team? Who do you follow? Um, traditionally speaking, a Red Sox fan, but now I'm a Mets fan because oh. I live here now. Well, that's a big leap. Well, no, I didn't become a Yankees fan. That would be a bigger leap. Yeah. True. I also Fair like enough. the Nats, even though it's crazy to like the Nats and the Mets, but I do it. All right. My God. The message has been sent. I tell you, I am, it'd be fun to be in your brain for a minute, but I'm also, I think it would be, it'd be a lot. It'd be a lot to look around and see these things all the time. I like living in my world of lies. Okay. No, I don't really. No, I'm actually. But it, that was a. That's a lot of signal. There's a lot going on out there. There is. I mean, yeah. And people have told me that, like, ever since they wrote read my book, they're seeing the world through the lens of weapons of math destruction, which is like, <laughs> I don't know whether to thank them or apologize. So we have a lot of programmers and engineers and people in technology who listen to the show, whom with whom we work and and so on. 
they're dealing with large amounts of data. They're dealing with, and, and we're increasingly, you know, Postlight as a company is doing more work around culture, around media, around a little bit around government. So when someone's giving us a big data set with a big question, what's an ethical path? And, and maybe that's too big of a question, but like, where do you start to think ethically about, you know, a couple terabytes of data that gets dropped on your lap? Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the book, I'm not hopeless or else I wouldn't have written the book at all. Like I, I call for ethics to be part of data science curriculum and like a regular part of conversation around algorithms. I mean, obviously I have a lot of opinions, you know, political opinions, but I'm not like, I'm not suggesting the way to think about ethics. You know, I'm suggesting that what we need to do is start acknowledging that we are embedding our values in every algorithm we build even just by our, de- our objective function, like the de- the definition of success. And the, the example I like to give is like when I make dinner for my kids, the data, that's an algorithm because mm-hmm. I think about everything in terms of algorithms. <laughs> and like the data going into that is like the food I have on hand, the time I have, the ambition I have. And the definition of success for me is when my if my kids eat their vegetables, right? My seven-year-old, if he were in charge, would be like, no, it's whether I get a lot of Nutella at dinner. And this matters because over time, we train our models to success. We optimize, right? That's the point. Um, so if I had a successful meal on Tuesday with lots of vegetable eating, then on Wednesday, I'm much more likely to repeat that meal than to do something that my kid wanted instead. Sure. So that's what we do when we build algorithms. We define success, and then we, we don't really spend enough time asking ourselves who's benefiting from this definition of success and who's suffering. Okay. The other thing is, of course, our data itself is often extremely biased. So we have to be careful about that. And I mean, really, the so aside from buying and reading your book, which is one one big part of this this as ethics question about big data, the other thing is just to take a minute. Don't just like think about some of the inherent biases. Think about the sources. Think about who put the data there. And as you're creating your algorithms, they're going to be interpreted and they're going to result in other people reacting as you draw conclusions. I mean, just example, just to be clear, like if you're thinking about like for-profit colleges and Google and the people who got targeted by them, right? So for-profit colleges made money because they got students. Google made money because they sold advertising for a lot. They get a lot of money from that stuff. The people who were like downwind of that, like who actually got targeted, the question is, was this a success, you know? And it might have been a success for the first two parties, but not for the third. Sure. And that's often true. Like, because we are often defined success simply by profit. And it's not clear that that's the only thing we should think about. All right. So we're going to go away and talk about this for probably the next six to eight months. <laughs> um, if people want to get in touch with you, Kathy, if they have questions, if they have ideas, if they have unique opportunities for yeah, online I mean, education. Beyond forming book groups to mm-hmm. talk it over. Um I'm I'm available. Like if you go to mathbabe.org, which is my blog, my email is on the about page. Great. And awesome. people should go read mathbabe.org. I want to tell everyone that they should go and buy either physically or via maybe the Amazon Kindle store where I And I also it. read the audiobooks by the way. Oh and if they're or, listeners. Or the audiobook. <laughs> Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. It's by Kathy O'Neill, mathbabe.org, and it's out from Random House Crown. It's available now. Lucky, lucky us. All right. This was cool. Really cool. My that pleasure, awesome. guys. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. in. Thank you. Rich. Paul. 
I think we should get back to the office. I think we should very carefully. All right. So I'm Paul Ford. I'm the co-founder of Postlight. Rich Ciotti. And if you want to check us out, hit postlight.com. You can also uh, subscribe to our newsletter, track changes. You can get to that by going to trackchanges.postlight.com. If you need anything, you just send us an email, contact at postlight.com. Feel free to rate us nicely on iTunes. We always like that. And we appreciate the contact and the support and the friendly counsel we receive from our many listeners. Very soothing. Let's wound that down. That's that's enough. Let's get back to the office. Bye-bye. Bye.